0: You know, who knows where the world's going to be in 20 years, but if something operates for 20 years in an open access environment, it's going to change the community significantly.
1: Welcome to the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And today I'm speaking with Joe Porre, the director of Petrichor Broadband. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's it's wonderful to have you. Uh you know, I I feel like I've long wanted to to delve into the world of Washington ports, which seems like an ecosystem all to itself. Um a lot of interesting investments, a lot of of great partnerships between the public and private sector. Um but let's uh let's just start off quickly with uh, your background. You've you've been in the game a long time. Um tell me how did you get into broadband and and just uh, maybe fast forward then to how you got to where you are now.
0: Um uh, my start um was in 1980 building cable television systems and from there i moved into the analog cellular systems itfs uh analog microwave uh, video and audio systems for both entertainment and education on to uh Washington State University, where I worked on a statewide uh, remote learning telecommunication system and its early infancy of digital video in the early 90s, and then on to uh, the port of Whitman County, um, where I thought I had left that industry behind.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and, and that's, um, I feel like a port is an interesting political. Uh, jurisdiction or or political entity in the United States. Um, Just for people who aren't that familiar, what does a port do?
0: So in Washington State, there's 75 port districts. And um, in a lot of uh, communities, when you uh, land at an airport, or you see a shipping port on the water, or an intermodal railroad yard, that could very well be a municipal piece of infrastructure. Called a port district, um, you know. Right now, in our country, with inflation and supply side problems, big stories of thirty to fifty uh, ships off shore at San Pedro and Los Angeles. Those are three big shipping ports, container ports down there, and uh, and uh, so a port can be of that magnitude and and operate a, an international airport, and intermodal yards for rail. And it can go all the way down to uh, operating a community boat ramp and a small campground.
1: Yeah, in the Mississippi, we have a number of ports here. And often it seems like, you know, people think of a port, they think of cranes and, and, and large ships. Uh, we don't have as much shipping on the Mississippi as we used to, but they still do a lot of economic development. And that's what I think of is, is they're often tasked with thinking broadly about economic development, and usually in larger projects in cities. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So our legacy, we're 435 miles up the Columbia Snake River system uh, from the mouth of the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And uh, we ship primarily agricultural products down the river system. Um, the efficiencies and the cost effectiveness of um, barging uh, commodities on a river system, such as the Mississippi or the Snake Columbia system, is uh, is where our our start was in 1958 for our particular port a younger port um and then in in 1997 uh, i started at the port in 96. in 1997 um dial-up internet became something that was going to reach every community and in whitman county where the port of whitman county is located um the county is larger than the state of rhode island and the way it got broken up from the deregulation of long distance and local loop calling from Ma Bell, we wound up with a lot of boundary running through our county, effectively making the community, the land grant college community of Pullman with Washington State University, effectively making that be in Idaho, mm-hmm. and five different telephone companies in Whitman County with a thirty-two to thirty-five cent a minute long distance charge to call to where the internet service providers had modem banks. And and we could just see right away that the unintended consequences of how the uh, monopoly phone company got broke up and the uh, tariffs and fee filing charges for voice telephone were not going to work for internet.
1: Because you might be looking at over one hour, you might rack up 20 or $30 of long distance charges. But if I'm making a local call, I'm probably paying $20 a month, just total cost. And so that long distance charge really changes the cost structure of whether you can use the internet at that time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, yeah, that was right when, you know, the sprint commercials were coming on nationally and you could lower your long distance calls down to $0.09. Cents. Mm-hmm. And 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 here, a, a call between two towns 10 miles apart is 35 cents a minute. And you're getting on a modem that's running at 18 <laughs> kilobits. <laughs> so you're, you're going to spend a, two bucks before the thing latches on. But, but we have a land-grant college in the community and uh, a lot of technology transferred that has stayed in the area. So the university had the internet and the university had capacity. And people were exposed to it, and and business was getting exposed to it, and the Port District, working in economic development, saw that we've got to change this game quickly, and uh, so we started in 1998, based out of the Port of Whitman County, um, asked for a legislative change to be able to build telecommunications infrastructure. Did not pass that session, and it passed the next session in the year 2000. We started building. Fiber optic cable bridging these unintended consequences of a deregulated market.
1: Was this was this sort of like they brought you in in 1996? The writings on the wall with the the Telecommunications Act. I mean, I I have to assume there's a reason they brought in a person who has a whole lot of background in telecom. Uh, you know, recognizing that that would be a need. Uh, or were you there for different purposes and you just got pulled back into your old life?
0: We had sold our businesses. Um, I had spent three years working at Washington State University and um took a job in nineteen ninety six to do some part time construction management work. Okay. I thought I left the industry completely behind uh at the time my daughter was uh sixteen years old and and uh it was really approaching what I thought was gonna be the first time in 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 my life that I would be home for dinner every night, and the office was gonna be fifteen miles from my home and uh um I didn't know much about the port, um, but when I learned quickly, you know, with some of the benefits to the community and the type of work it did, and I thought I'd left broadband completely behind and was going to work in industrial development and working with businesses that are transferring intellectual property out of the university and growing manufacturing.
1: Well, in some ways, I think if you want to take a strict definition, you did leave broadband behind, right? Because the port only deals in dark fiber, and so, in a way, or am I wrong? Do you do? Do you also provide lit services?
0: No, no, we do not. And our model uh, statewide does not provide any lit services. And we can get into that. So, yeah, what I did is I married capitalization of of private sector companies and 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 the the money we needed to raise, the infrastructure we needed to build to make a profit quickly for investors, together with what a port does, which is takes a long term infrastructure-based approach for its community. So we, we knew that we were going to take a, a longer return on investment and build much-needed infrastructure. But as uh, Paul Volcker at the time, you know, from the Fed, right, as he was leaving and Greenspan was coming in about that time, I believe, um, you know, he said, you, you've got to know when to pull the punch bowl. And, you know, it just can't become a party on the public purse. And, you uh, the port commissioners were very astute about that. Um, and, and we m- married together what we knew was a safe investment in the long-term infrastructure that on empowered local companies not to have to capitalize that. They could spend their money on staffing, electronics, diversifying their business portfolio, differentiating themselves and growing. And you know, today we have 23 companies riding on our fiber all providing different services.
1: It's a vision that seems to have worked out well.
0: Yeah, it was working really well. And then the pandemic came. Now it's in hyperdrive.
1: Right. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, you, you referenced uh, the, the job where you would be home for dinners. I'm guessing that that did not quite pan out for a lot of those years.
0: It's never panned out. Uh, my daughter now lives in Boston. And um, at six in the morning when I get in the car to go to work, it's nine in the morning there. We have a talk.
1: Nice. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> the um well one of the things I'm I'm interested in is um how you went from um you know focused on uh the port of Whitman County, in which I, I believe you were already working well beyond the boundaries of Whitman County, but then you decide to form Petracor broadband. How did that come about?
0: The legislative authority for a port district um works within or outside your district for the benefit of your district, hence shipping things down a waterway, operating short line railroads, operating an airport, um, most intermodal transportation, you know, it doesn't stop at a county line. So um, we, we built infrastructure um at the port of Whitman, just leading up to forming PetraCorps and, and a lot of other ports in the state jumping in. Um, we built fiber optic infrastructure a little over 400 miles in two states, six counties, and 30-some cities. Up to Spokane, Washington, where we have space in, in uh, two different floors of uh, buildings, basically the Meet Me Hotel for all the broadband providers. And we just make our rural areas transparent to an urban area, easy to do business in. And when the companies don't have that capitalization, you know they'll come.
1: And you said two states, one of those being uh, working with ports in Idaho that are um, also on that same Snake and and, um, uh, Columbia River.
0: Yes, we reach in uh, along the Snake River and then uh, 40 miles up uh, from the river, we reach over from Washington State University to the University of Idaho. They're 10 miles apart.
1: So you've you've built in excess of 400 miles of fiber. Now, um, how far does an ISP often have to take the handoff from you? So you know you might build into a town. I think Garfield is one of the towns you've built into that I had seen. Um, you know, do you build close to every home or in premise, or do you kind of uh, hand it off to the ISP and they build a significant amount of fiber in the town themselves? Uh, how how does that handoff work?
0: Our model has always built to a DMARC on the premise, be it a commercial building or a home. And then there's a little box on the outside of the home where there's a D-Mark where the port takes care of the fiber from that demarcation back to the A location. And then the company is leasing the fiber from the port will plug in on the other side of that D-Mark, run their electronics at the home service their customer. Oftentimes the people that are buying the end service don't know that it's a municipal system or that this company is leasing fiber. Mm -hmm. And 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 we like it that way. We're we're not out there to uh you know muddy the communication between an end customer that's been picked up by an ISP or a broadband service provider on a success-based business transaction to be in, in the middle of all that. We just simply deal with the carriers and they deal with their customers. In Garfield and, and uh, six other communities and growing, three communities coming online in the next month or two over on the west side of the state, we do fiber to the premise and we fiber every home.
1: And I mean, that's just remarkable because there's a lot of places where I think they want to do that, but they haven't figured out how to make the numbers work, particularly among more rural areas, um, because uh, the costs of connecting each home, you know, are, are presumed to be so great in excess of three, $4,000 in some cases, maybe even a significant more than uh, amount, more than that. Um, and then for you to be able to recover those costs just with um, you know, some of the fees that the ISPs pay you, uh, that's remarkable.
0: Well, on, on paper, when, when we plan things out, it can be a 10 to 12 year return on investment usually winds up being a seven to nine year return on investment. right now. There's stresses on materials, you know, that our, our major vendors on fiber aren't even taking quotes right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Previously, uh, to that position, they were stating 50 weeks you know, and and, uh, so we we need some things to break there. When you do a municipal system like this, um, the capitalization, of course, is the challenge. Um, One of the, the instruments that we have used successfully is an irrevocable right of use, where with the incumbent licensed exchange carrier in the community, they'll do the design to our specifications for open access, and they'll construct it We'll approve the construction once finished, and then it'll operate for twenty years as an open access model. And there's economies of scale in doing collaborations like that that are lowering the cost down. Um, matter of fact, communities that we did uh, a year and a half ago, uh the cost with twenty years of maintenance built in was eight hundred dollars a pass.
1: Wow. Okay.
0: Yeah, and 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 you know, two to three thousand dollars could be real realistic today. You know, who knows where the world's going to be in 20 years, but if something operates for 20 years in an open access environment, it's going to change the community significantly. And uh, right now in, in the communities where we're operating like that, we have three to four companies offering gig service for under $75 a month competing with each other.
1: Well, and I think one of the other benefits you've had is that Washington has had a pretty good program for um, grants to subsidize uh, some of the high cost areas. I think you've been a recipient of, uh, I think they're called the Curb grants, the CERB. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Department of Commerce at Washington State started in 1998 with some broadband money through the Community Economic Revitalization Board. That's Curb. Today, we have the Public Works Board um, working in broadband money and the state broadband office that just started two years ago. So we have three pots of money at the state level. It's all NTIA money handed down federally to the state with the same rules. And we were very pleased to see in the rulemaking on the, the federal level and the state level where the money has to go to a public and it has to be open access.
1: We're fascinated to see what states do with this because, I mean, the way you just struck stated it with, um, I think, is... Um, uh, standing states have some leeway they're encouraged to to hand it to the public and i think they're encouraged for it to be open access but i don't think it's um required and so i'm curious to see which states really um do that and i think you know states where you have uh um, approaches like yours where it's worked so well are probably gonna do a lot more of it i think
0: well we have a, a meeting this afternoon with another community that was just awarded some money from the broadband office and uh well, it'll be interesting to see, but where the where this goes. But yes, there's there's a number of people, and and you can't blame them one bit that are working in in county or or city administration that are like, hey, this money became available, and you know our our local broadband company, be it an ISP or the ILEC or a CLEC or whomever it is, came to me and said. You know, I'll write the application and I'll do this thing and I'll add it on to my network and uh, and we'll take care of this and we'll get broadband to all these people. And, you know, the administrator says, well, that's just great because I'm busy already and you know, right. what a, we wouldn't do anything. Um, we bring a different voice to that. I in Washington state, I, I question whether some of the deals that I've seen in other states w- would. Is going to pass the scrutiny of NTIA and the federal oversight. Because they're not open access. I also question the uh, simplifying it down to that level from a municipal uh, perspective. You're going to have 20 years of audits. You're going to have oversight on this thing. It's got a tail, and if you're not collecting revenue, it's actually going to cost you money Mm -hmm. in the. And if you don't have oversight over it operating correctly. Through the state back to NTIA, if you read the legislation, they can call you up and ask for the money back.
1: Yes, yeah. one of the <laughs> one of the words that they use is in the in the Iij the infrastructure is de-obligate, which <laughs> yeah, right um, is uh, is interesting,
0: and and uh, being obligated <laughs> could be a little painful.
1: Yes. 13. Yeah because you uh it's pretty difficult to pull the fiber back out of the ground or off the poles and put it back on spindles and return it for a full refund.
0: Oh they're going to go after the general obligation taxing authority of the entity
1: of localities that haven't done the the, the correct job. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: And 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 unlike Btop there is some oversight this time.
1: Yeah, I do think that's a, a benefit. I'm, I mean, I'm curious to see how NTIA writes the rules. The um, the rescue plan, I feel like um, that money that's out there, um, I think communities won't face as much oversight. But um, we'll see. Um, I, I think a lot of the communities are going to be doing um, open access for a variety of reasons. But... Um, uh, I'm curious to see what lessons we'll learn from this, because I think there's very little oversight in the rescue plan. And then, like you said, NTIA, though, does have obligations to keep overseeing it from the infrastructure dollars as those come out.
0: Yeah, we're curious, too. Our phone's ringing, by the way.
1: Oh, I believe it.
0: <laughs> you know, a lot, a lot of people are, are wanting to um, do open access. They believe in it.
1: Well, one of the things that I, I enjoyed from a quote that uh, um, I believe you gave my colleague Marin um, when she wrote an article about Petrichor in, in, in the western part of the state building uh, these networks uh, north of Portland, um, you said, uh, we spent $80 billion in the last 20 years trying to solve the broadband problem through different federal programs. Uh, and we've all we've done is made high-cost companies rich, and there's no service to the high-cost customers. Um, and that's... That's something I I hear from people who have been doing this work for a long time is this frustration that so much money has been spent. It's not that we haven't spent money. It's that it's been spent ineffectively. And so um, it sounds like you're getting, um, you know, more people are listening to you now in terms of the success of this approach.
0: At the federal level, we were very pleased to see the money go to the Department of Commerce down through NTIA. You know, when we look at the, the reverse auction that the FCC just did. You know, it's it's USDA rule, utility service, which has done good work, don't get me wrong. Um, and some of the FCC programs like CAF2 and then on to RDOF, that's where the $80 billion has gone. And we still have the mass of geography of our country with 50 to 75-year-old copper phone line in the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, $80 billion could have fibered the country. But we've created a cost-benefit analysis over a 100-year period of time where these are very high-cost companies, and and that's how you get subsidy. I had a Washington Utilities and Transportation Commissioner tell me in 1998, very brilliant guy, he said, Joe, we got to find a way to start funding the high-cost customer, not the high-cost company. Mm -hmm. Since he told me that, we've spent $80 billion in subsidy.
1: Right. And now I I feel like it's worth calling out some of the folks because we've seen – some of the, the telephone cooperatives have uh, done a great job of turning that money into fiber and future-proof investments. Uh, some of the independents, you know, Minnesota and Iowa, sort of land of the independents, a fair number of those have done really good things with the money. Um, you know, some of the, the biggest companies who have been the largest recipients, I think, have been among the worst, where they just haven't made the investments that are needed, and they haven't been required to by rules that are far too lax.
0: We've written position papers to the FCC and and the state UTC on on accountability and and always trying to get our voice in there. That's true. That's how it's it's gone. That's you know very factual on even on Ardoff. I'm not sure if they've gone to contract yet. A year later.
1: Oh yeah, we were just tracking this down, and um, I think. Somewhere between half and, and two-thirds of the money has gone out the door. Like The rural Electric Cooperatives have largely got their money. A lot of the local companies have gotten their money. I think Charter Spectrum is getting their money. Uh, but some of the biggest winners uh, haven't gotten a dime yet because of uh, the FCC. I think trying to figure out just what level of scrutiny they're going to apply to some of the business plans and that sort of a thing.
0: Yeah, so that that's a good sign.
1: So what the last thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, a significant change of law in Washington, uh, you now have broader authority to begin offering retail services. And yet, whether I talk to you or the the rural um, uh, public utility districts, uh, it doesn't seem like many of you want to change your model, you you do like the model. And and even though you have extra authority now, uh, it seems like you're likely to continue operating in the way you have.
0: Oh, we will. Statewide, we work with oh, over 25 uh, telecommunications service providers. We felt when we started um, that we were not going to outthink the private sector. We were not going to out-innovate the private sector. We were going to stick to building expensive capitalization infrastructure that's long-term use and, and leave the uh, technology and the uh, r- running a business to the, to the experts. That, that compete, and we also knew that a non-discriminatory, open-access system, where everyone could compete, would provide the best quality services and pricing to our constituents. And 20 years later, that's proved out tenfold. And so i, I just going to imagine a case study where we would uh, purchase the electronics, staff up. And start competing with these companies that have built their business models around this infrastructure. Everywhere we go, at least three or four good companies rush in to compete, even in little tiny markets with eighty homes.
1: I assume that many of those um, operate blanket across your system. Is that is that right? I mean, they, um, do you have companies that only compete on like some segments of your system, like in in Western Washington, or once they're on your system, do they compete for every last customer on it?
0: Um, I mean, we have the national companies that lease fiber from us, but but a lot of the ISPs are, are regional based, and and they focus on the communities where they live.
1: Mm-hmm. The, other, the last thing that pops into my head is uh, you know some of these companies that have received the billions of dollars and and not made the necessary investments. Uh, they employ um, you know people at think tanks and other places where uh, they want to make out people like you and I to be anti-business suggests that we are trying to destroy the market system. I'm just curious how you respond to that.
0: It's pretty difficult. I come from the private sector, um, raised capital for my own business, sold my own business. Um, I have a lot of respect for that. Um, Moved to public work in this sector. And and when you start working on a public side of this, you realize that, you know, it's a monopoly-based business. It started with Watson, can you hear me? Mm Mm-hmm. And it was 75 years later, it started breaking it apart. And in our country, we didn't probably do the best job of breaking that apart and creating a a fair playing field for competitors and um, companies, uh, the larger ones with the most assets and, you know, employees that are now in their 50s, 60s and early 70s that are people that have been in the industry their whole life you know, are still uh, trying to keep a market edge through every, every um, opportunity they can. And barriers to entry with infrastructure is a big place where they can hold that together. Um, you know, if we wanna service an area, um, a community wants broadband and there's only a 12 strand fiber running in there from the ILEC, and there's no room in the co-location facility, you know, it gets pretty hard for, for competition to show up without spending a lot of capital. If, if the port or a municipality takes that on, uh, you'll immediately see competition, pricing, and services that are competitive.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank
3: you, Christopher. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash bits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at Community Nets. Follow MuniNetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at MuniNetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, Please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening.